I saw one of the evening nurses at one of the homes, and he was slumped in his chair, and he just looked so despondent. And I, you know, I sat with him, and I said, what's the matter? And he said, you know, I feel so badly. He said, there was a woman I passed by every night, and she would be moaning and crying out. And I would walk by her every night, he said, because I thought there wasn't anything I could do. And now I realize there's something I could do. This is Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Caregiver Storyteller, a storytelling podcast about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. I'm Chris Doucette, and I'll be interviewing caregivers to get their stories about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. Occasionally, I'll also interview the authors, advocates, researchers, healthcare professionals, and people with Alzheimer's and dementia to hear their stories, too. So, are you ready? Here we go. I'm really excited about this episode of Caregiver Storyteller because today I get to speak with Ann Wyatt, who works here at Caring Kind as the manager of palliative and residential care. She also works in the cubicle right next to mine. So Ann, why don't we start by having you introduce yourself and explain to folks what you've been charged to do here with regard to residential care for people with dementia. Will do. I'm Ann Wyatt, and I've been working in the field of long-term care since the 70s, actually. Uh, I've been a nursing home administrator, a home care administrator, and uh, worked in various aging programs throughout all this time. In 2010, uh, I was asked to come to Caring Kind to help them rethink uh, how they might be more, more or most helpful to residential care settings throughout the five boroughs. And this interested me very much. I've known the good work they've done for all these years. I've known Jed and many people here for a long time. So this was a very uh, uh, exciting prospect for me. As I began to get into this, um, I eventually came upon a program out in Arizona, which had really done a huge amount of research um, in the area of palliative care for people with advanced dementia. Uh, we, I went out to see them and immediately understood that they had figured out some important ingredients in terms of providing really good quality care to people who were, um, had advanced dementia. Uh, what particularly struck me was not only the quality of the experience on the, on the um, care unit itself and how comfortable people seemed, but also that the organization had figured out the uh, organizational uh, adaptations that needed to be in place in order to really better support the staff on the floor. But the most striking thing was really just how comfortable people seemed on the unit. These were people with advanced dementia. As we later learned, they were people who had been asked to leave other facilities or had been rejected by other facilities because of so-called behaviors. And um, here they were, comfortable, with a really pleasing and and actually quite inviting atmosphere. So that spoke volumes to me, and when I came back to New York, we talked it through and then began to prepare to bring that model to New York. And uh, we raised the funds, and we had three volunteer homes who were really willing to engage in this with us, uh, and that would be uh, uh, Cobble Hill Health Center in Brooklyn, Jewish home, uh, the new Jewish home on 106th Street in Manhattan, and Isabella Geriatric Center. They all uh, were quite interested in the idea of improving care and signed up. Our original plan was a 30-month project, um, and we invited the folks from Beatitudes to 
do the educating with us and the monitoring and coaching all along the way, which they they did beautifully. This was an amazing project because even though our plan had always been to bring this model uh, to these homes, nonetheless, all three of our homes were much larger, certainly than the Beatitudes home. And we're talking several hundred beds altogether. 700 beds in one home, 350 in another, 500 in another, much bigger than Beatitudes. Um, and we, the idea was that each home would select a unit to work with and spend a year slowly implementing the care practices that we had, been, we had learned about from Beatitudes. The interesting thing is that um, even though, as I said, our plan was to bring about profound change, nonetheless it was almost a surprise when we achieved it because it's a very complicated process in the sense that um, we often ask people to do things differently than they had ever done them before, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one of them is that uh, one of the things we learned was that none of our homes, for example, uh, well, all of our homes, uh, provided people with dementia who had the need of pain medications. The uh, way it was organized was that it was PRN, that is to say people had to ask for it. Now, if you think about it, somebody with advanced dementia who's able to come up to the nurse and say, excuse me, but my you know, shoulder is hurting. Could I please have my pain medication? <laughs> isn't very realistic. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so one of the things we learned you know, is to pay a lot more attention to pain. And we also learned that, um, uh, that we would do a lot better job of detecting and treating effectively pain if we used a behavior-based pain scale instead of um, the usual, uh, more common scales like the smiley faces, for example, which, or the, you know, on a scale of one to 10. Again, if you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. The person with dementia is rarely going to be able to respond to those scales. So that was the sort of the interesting uh, point about our whole experience. On the one hand, it took a long time and it was very challenging. On the other hand, as we got more deeply into it, it all made increasingly huge amounts of common sense. Mm. It makes sense that if you have a sore shoulder from arthritis, that you're always that that's not going to go away, and that if we regularly schedule your Tylenol, for example, uh, in the morning before you get dressed when it's likely to hurt the most, then we will uh, prevent discomfort and pain. So it sounds like this, the Beatitudes program was kind of a pivot point in the care for people with Alzheimer's and dementia, or dementia, really. Is that is that fair to say, that there was a before and after with regard to how to um, care for people well, with dementia? That's a great question, because I think that, you know, there, it's, it's, there certainly is a lot of good care going on. There's no question about that around the country. Um, but what was striking about Beatitudes was that they put all the pieces together and they made the organizational shifts that had to be there. Very often what happens is, and it's not that it's a bad thing, but what will happen is that the frontline staff will get training. Uh, again, frontline tra staff, that would be the nursing assistants. Mm -hmm. Usually it's the nursing assistants, mm -hmm. actually. And that's fine, but the nursing assistant can't change the policy around medication. They mm -hmm. can't change the policy around what pain scale to use. 
The organization has to do those things. Mm -hmm. And what we discovered in this process was that very often those so-called behaviors were the result of somebody being in distress, often, very often, pain. And that if you treated the pain, the behavior would disappear. And um, that's really, really, really (laughs) important because, as uh, many people probably know, um, the uh, Center for Medicaid and Medicare has been working very hard over the last several years to encourage strongly (laughs) uh, nursing homes to reduce their use of antipsychotics. Mm -hmm. If you give somebody an antipsychotic for behavior and that behavior is happening because somebody's in pain, you aren't treating the pain. The person will still be in pain. And as it happens, and as it as we discovered, very often if you treat the pain, the behavior disappears, the person's comfortable, and you haven't risked all the uh, unintended but uh, difficult consequences of uh, what ultimately is an unneeded antipsychotic. So that was very big. Mm-hmm. That was huge. I, it, so it's not that nobody else had done any of these things, but as I said, what was striking to me, and I have been an administrator in the past, was that they really, they really got to the organizational shifts that really made this mu- work much better. Mm-hmm. Of course, everybody who works in a nursing home needs training in dementia care, but that includes the organization's policies and procedures and approach. Everybody in the home, managers and administrators, need to have a better handle on what good dementia care looks like. And where did all that come from? I mean, can you paint a picture of what dementia care looked like, you know, quote unquote, in the old days, right? Was the need for change a result of pandemonium of pain of 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 behavior that seemed uncontrollable was it is it is it a money thing is it is it a behavior thing what was what paint a picture of what what the problem was uh, that that sure. that brought attention to this issue in the first place well I, the interesting thing is that and i can tell you a little bit about the beatitudes experience which will illustrate it but the interesting thing is that i think for a very long long time most people thought that those behaviors were, in the main, something you couldn't do a lot about. Now, more progressive folks here here and there and around uh, understood that behavior is communication. Mm-hmm. But that, and even though lots of people who work in homes or, you know, who do this work can repeat and believe that phrase, and it's true, on the other hand, translating that into an effective intervention to really help somebody and prevent pain, that was much more rare. And can you give me some examples of what behavior you're talking about? Well, pounding the table, moaning, calling out, crying, uh, being inconsolable, striking out at another resident, striking out at a staff person when being um, dressed in the morning, Mm -hmm. all of those kinds of things. Um, Let me just tell you, even though there were certainly places that had done many of these things well, what Beatitudes started about a little over 20 years ago, they had uh, a unit that was uh, largely people with uh, advanced dementia, and they didn't know what they were going to do, but they looked around and they didn't like what they saw, because they saw um, lots of these behaviors and what they gradually became very clear was discomfort and distress. So they, they started looking around, and one of the first things they did was to ask the staff 
um, because most people are familiar with uh, who have had any encounters with uh, dementia are familiar with the term sundowning, which is basically a period usually in the late afternoon, early evening when there when people appear to be often uh, just fidgety and uncomfortable and mm-hmm. um, dis- uh, distressed more so. Um, so they asked the staff, just keep your eyes open. Look around you from around 2 in the afternoon till around 9 o'clock at night, and let's just compare notes, you know, mm-hmm. and see what, we, uh, see what we're all looking at here. So one of the first things they noticed was that the TV was on and noisy most of that time, and hardly anybody, if anybody, was even looking at it. So one thing they did was take the TV out of the day room, the, the main uh, lounge area. It's not that nobody on that unit can watch TV, but it needs to be intentional, mm-hmm. not just on in the background uh, un- unceasingly. The second thing they noticed was that the shift change, which happens in the afternoon around 3 o'clock, somewhere between 3 and 4 in most homes, um, was very frantic. Staff were racing to get their things done before they left, and other staff were racing to come on the unit and get started. Mm-hmm. That racing that the staff were doing caused a lot of uh, 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 sort of anxiety on the unit. So right. that it disruption, was a, right? Disruption, yeah. yes. So they gradually worked to the idea, and I've been there now several times, and I've seen it for myself, uh, what they call a silent shift change. So I've been there during shift change, and you don't notice all these changes because people have learned to keep it calm and keep it relaxed and um, so that it's seamless. I'm very proud to say that our homes have achieved this. It took a long time and it was not easy, but they did get there. Um, Interesting. The, and I, I, wanted to, I wanted to go back to that and talk about oh, why it's, why it's, so, why it's so hard. Right, because sitting here, I think, well, sh- a quiet shift change, that doesn't seem so hard. But clearly, if it's, an, if it's a systemic change, yes. uh, then and that's always a difficult thing. Yes, yes. But just to back up one more, one mm-hmm. more step, because I'm always interested the, in, in, in what inspires change, right? Because the forces that compel people to maintain the status quo are so overwhelming, and that's why change doesn't happen. What was it about Beatitudes that that made them question what was happening? I mean, if this was if this behavior has been going on for years and years and years, did did someone new show up? Did, yes. Was, yes. What what was that moment? Because that's what I'm I'm curious about. Well, I would say that they they brought some people on staff um, who were uh, specialists in uh, geral psych uh, uh, work. And uh, one of whom very prominently was Tina, is still (laughs) Tina Alonzo. And she's a geropsych person. And she's the first to say, when we started, we didn't know exactly. But here's the difference, and this is probably at the root of your question. They believed there must be a better way. They didn't know what it was, but they believed that it must be better. So that's when they started looking at what they were doing and what they might be able to do. and they, But they also very clearly said the staff has to come with us. Mm. We have to do this together. So that's mm-hmm. why they started out with, let's all of us look and talk about what we're seeing. Let's make this change and see what happens. Let's make this change and see mm-hmm. what happens. So it was a group of professionals who really just looked at the floor yes. and said, this is... This doesn't seem comfortable for anyone. That's right. As, and it's, you know, as you can imagine, it's as uncomfortable for staff as it is for residents in sure. a whole different way. 
the uh, third thing they did um, on this unit, and then I, I'll talk about the sort of whole thing a little bit more. The third thing they did was they noticed there were a lot of people that were nodding off, um, sleeping, you know, sort of sitting askew in their chair and whatnot. And they started to think about the fact, again, one of those embarrassing but logical things, people with advanced dementia get tired more easily because being awake is very demanding for Mm -hmm. them. It doesn't mean they sleep the day away, but it means that many folks need to rest and they need a balance of stimulation. So for example, when you get up in the morning, you go through the morning routine, you have breakfast, maybe not necessarily going back to bed, although there may be folks that need to, um, but a restful period before any kind of activity. Mm. And then lunch, and then another rest period. And some people did in the afternoon like to go back to bed um, and lie down, even get into bed. Some people you know, like to lie on top of the bed. Some people um, really had a comfortable chair or corner on the couch. Uh, If they noticed this, a staff person would bring them a pillow so they could be more comfortable as opposed to, Mm -hmm. you know, as I say, askew. And gradually they realized that people really were more comfortable, that the combination of things that they had done to make the environment less overwhelming and and overstimulating through the work with the um, shift change, with taking the TV out, and letting people rest and trying to balance that stimulation, they haven't had, they have not had uh, sundowning in nearly 20 years. And you say that to the average, you know, nursing home or even the average family member, and they find this hard to believe, but they haven't had it because they really paid attention to the notion of if somebody is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Our job is to find a way to make them comfortable and to scan and the environment and ourselves until we can figure out, you know, what's going on for them. That's really the fundamental thing, the idea. Right. And, th- and this shift, um, and, and this is why I kept re- referencing early on to the idea of um, uh, so-called behavior, because we now, even here, uh, are st- stopping the idea of behavior as a description of anything. We call it distress. If we call it behavior, there's this subtle suggestion that you're misbehaving and that you need mm-hmm. to stop it. Mm-hmm. If we call it distress, I see you're in distress, then it's on me to help figure out how we can you know, either right. end it or prevent it. Right, there's only good behavior and bad behavior. That's there's right. No That's other right. kind. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so that changes everything when you begin to sort of shift that idea. That's at the heart of all the success that our three homes have had, that all the work that Beatitudes is doing, is really that it is about the distress and responding to that. Now, the distress could come from pain. You know, it could come from too hot or too cold. It could come from being hungry. It could come from being scared. Mm -hmm. Um, frightened by something in the environment. One doesn't really know. Sometimes it's uh, quick and easy to figure it out, and sometimes it can take weeks or even months before you Mm -hmm. get to the bottom of it. But when you do, it makes a difference, and I'm going to give you a couple of great examples. But the interesting thing is, and this is the fundamental thing that I'm so grateful to Beatitudes for, and that is if you believe it's distress and that your job is to get to the bottom of it, it's possible to get there. Mm. If you don't believe that, if you think it's just the dementia, you don't get there. 
because uh, the history of dementia is that there used to be a time, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when a person acted out or behaved in it's a way just that a was dementia. hostile, it's just dementia, and you can't do it. They're not in pain. There's not a problem. It's just sometimes dementia makes you act Right, you know, in a that's certain right. way. That's right. And 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 now we know that that's not really true. That the all dementia behavior comes from the dementia um, means the, the person can't explain what's going on, mm-hmm. but what's going on is going on. Now, it's not that no home before beatitudes ever, or no no professional or no family member didn't figure this out or no CNA because oftentimes it's about approach you know if I if I'm coming to care for you in the morning and I take you know I'm slow with you and look at you and talk to you and and gentle that's going to make a difference versus you know if I come in and move you around and don't talk to you and you know you're hardly awake and whatnot that's good common sense, although right. it's not always evenly applied or evenly. Right. So that was always there. Right. I mean, there's been some wonderful caregiving gone on. As I said, what really, what I liked bringing it to New York, and again, this is the administrator talking, is what the organization had to do to make it more possible. Mm-hmm. And um, that's been the really thrilling part. So, But it was challenging. Any nursing home in personality is very different from one to the next. The fact that we had these three... Uh, long-standing homes uh, with very different personalities who were willing to take this on and then uh, uh, really work on it was um, was a pretty daunting idea in mm-hmm. the beginning. I can't even begin to tell you how amazing it is, and they would agree, uh, the transformation that their units went through. Now, to your point earlier about why does it take so long, and you're not certainly the only person to ask that question, there are a lot of things. Like one of them is, um, uh, just to take an example, one of the things that we learned was that if somebody um, is not eating the most or eating well, the, mo- the, the automatic reaction for years has just been to get them to eat, drink supplements. Mm-hmm. Now, in all my years of long-term care, what I've seen year in and year out is lots of cans of supplements sitting around with a straw in it and a little bit out of it, but most of the supplement left inside. They're not very right. tasty for the right. most part. And what Beatitudes does is they offer food around every 45 minutes or an hour as long as anybody's awake. That might be orange slices. It might be cookies. They have a, a cookie machine that they bake cookies every afternoon. So when you go on that unit, it that, smells heavenly. Wow, that is um, that Yeah, it's great. <laughs> they do... Um, They'll do peanut butter sandwiches cut up and quartered or tuna fish sandwiches. And here's the other piece of this, and that is that one of the things that we know about as, adv- as dementia advances is that people start to lose the ability to initiate mm-hmm. an activity or uh, a question or a thought. That doesn't mean that they can't respond, but they may not initiate. Mm. So if I put a plate of cookies you know, across the room they may or may not come by to get them. But if I come up and sit down next to them and offer them a cookie, they're much more likely to take it. Mm. Now, some people still eat you know, in the dining room um, really quite a long time into the illness. But when people are uncomfortable, and that's again getting back to the balance of stimulation, dining rooms full of people with dementia can get pretty um, intense sometimes. So the idea is that you help people be comfortable wherever they need to be. Sometimes they might want to eat in their room 
or down the hall, or they don't want to eat with the group at all. It's about the, they depend on the snacks for their nutrition. Right. But uh, as I learned, you know, when I was writing one of our uh, palliative care, residential care news, newsletters on uh, food a while back and just describing the work that Beatitudes does and what we learned, I found myself pausing and thinking, can I really say this sentence? And then I thought, okay, go for it. And the sentence was, people are more likely to eat food they like. <laughs> and why should this be any more different than right. the person? And why right. Why do you want to fight with somebody over whether they eat their broccoli or not? Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, it's not going to make a difference. That's to give, And this is the lead-in to the example that one of the things we also learned was that the American Diabetes Association and the um, National Dietetic Group have for years said that when people live in residential care, they should have a liberalized diet, with the rarest of exceptions, because quality of life really matters. Mm -hmm. And food is one of the few pleasures that somebody with dementia can still enjoy. Right. Um, Food and music are the biggies, you know, for for people uh, in the advanced stages. So why not give them something that they enjoy? And why... I mean, one of the sort of forever pictures in my mind in long-term care is the poor nursing assistant at a birthday party for a resident, and one resident gets the uh, good cupcake and the other one gets the sugar-free one, and the resident with diabetes wants the good cupcake, and she has to argue about it. Well, that goes away. (laughs) That goes away in this scenario. That's one example. But that's not an easy process. Um, the, other, the other interesting thing is that Beatitudes um, has uh, Hershey's Kisses on their medicine cart. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when you know, they see somebody might be getting a little unsettled, uncomfortable, they'll hand them a Hershey's Kiss, which immediately gives them this wonderful little great moment right. of pleasure. Right. The other thing they use is lollipops. Now, as it happens, one of our homes, there was a... Um, a housekeeper on one of our homes that was already had already been doing this for years, but and that often works beautifully because it distracts somebody. If, you know, if they're starting to get you know a little upset about something, that immediately drops away because the lollipop is absorbing and takes right. a while. Right. One of when we did our original education, we also worked in addition with the three homes, with the three hospice programs that they were um, working with in each home. And uh, so after the education, one of the hospice nurses uh, at a follow-up conversation told us the story about how she heard about the lollipops. And she was going out to somebody's house to do a dressing change. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those situations where every time she went, um, it was really uh, unpleasant and and difficult. This patient uh, lived with her daughter, and the nurse would get there, and it would just be really, uh, you know, the the person would get really upset. It was hard for the nurse and hard for the daughter. So the nurse thought this time, well, why not try it? And so she took along a lollipop, and when she got there, instead of starting right in on the dressing change, she handed the woman a lollipop, mm-hmm. and the dressing change was over in five minutes without any any difficulty wow. whatsoever. Now, again, that doesn't work for everybody right. all the time, right. but the idea here is what can we do to help bring comfort to this situation. Mm-hmm. 
to prevent distress, prevent, which has, as you can quickly see, an impact not only on the person, but on their family members and on the staff. Right. When Beatitudes really got to the point where they had achieved that um, late afternoon, early evening tranquility so that they eliminated sundowning, at that point, families started coming back more in the evenings to visit. Because even if your relative wasn't the person banging on the table, to have to walk through a gauntlet of people that were in distress to get to your relative was just painful. So they saw a definite uptake in the um, visitations by family. And if it's painful for a younger, healthier person, then how much more painful is it for an older person and one with dementia, right? Yes. and what is that about? Why? It seems like there was a paradigm shift, right? And the, and the paradigm shift is instead of an institution asking its residents to go through a certain process at a certain time, you'll, you know, you'll wake up here, you'll get dressed here, you'll eat here, you'll go to bed here. It seems like it was there was a switch. Well, some of it comes, uh, Tom Kitwood um, was a wonderful person in England who really wrote um, some of the early, in the 90s, I believe, um, some of the early sort of, he really focused on the personness mm-hmm. of the person with dementia, that they're still there as a person, mm-hmm. not necessarily in the same way. But and, um, and I would say that, you know, behaviorist communication is something which is widely around, but as I said, not everybody translated. Now, that issue that you're raising about schedule mm-hmm. uh, and efficiency I think, and there's been a larger movement in the, in the nursing home world for the last, I have to think about this, 20-some-odd uh, years um, to have more person-centered care in general. But even during this period of time, I've certainly been asked, but what, you know, so it's great to know somebody's history and know their preferences, but what about the person with dementia? Um, you know, how do you, well, how do you, they don't have preferences. And of course, that's interesting. Even before I came uh, mm-hmm. upon the work that Beatitudes has been doing, I recognized, I thought that's sort of bizarre because all the nursing assistants I've known over the years, if they're caring for eight people, they don't give eight showers the same way because they know instinctively some things are going to work better with this person, something a little different with that person. But it wasn't institutionalized, if you will, very well. Right. Um, but the, the other thing is that the 1987 uh, nursing home reform law, which I am a huge fan of, really said put the person at the center and pay attention to their comfort and uh, with or without dementia and to their preferences. Now, again, this is one of those embarrassing things, but the reality is that it's a lot harder, and we should all know this, but Somehow it doesn't always get applied. It's a lot harder to make somebody do something they don't want to do than to work with them in a you know in a way in which they're more comfortable right. and you'll be more comfortable. Right. Now I, I suppose that there is an anxiety. I know that there is an anxiety. Oh my God, you'll have complete pandemonium. But that's you know that's not really the way it works. Right. Um, and let me give you a beautiful example that happened at one of our homes, and I can talk about it because. Uh, this man's wife wants us to talk about it because it made such a difference in her life. Um, he came to Isabella about a month after our program started, and he had been, his name is Anthony, and he had been 
put out of other homes. He'd spent time on a psych unit, and he was on a lot of medications, mm-hmm. psych medications, when he came. And his wife was terrified that Isabella would put him out, too. You know, she was really at her wit's end. And the staff sat down with her and talked through what was going on because he was combative and resistive and all these things. Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out when they talked to her that they, they learned that he had been his custom for many years to stay up until about 4 in the morning, have a sandwich, go to bed, get up around noon or 1 o'clock, and have some breakfast. When do you suppose he was combative and resistive? <laughs> when they tried to get him to go to bed at a certain hour and when right. they tried to get him up. Now, how often do any of us like to be awakened out of a sound sleep and made to get up? Never mind the person with dementia who we somehow miraculously expect to hear and understand what we're saying to them. Right. So they shifted things, and he hasn't been on antipsychotic meds for years. I mean, wow. this all happened in 2013. That's how long. Mm-hmm. She has to travel an hour and a half each way when she visits. Mm-hmm. But she said when, you know, when they went through this and he was, you know, being gradually taken off the meds, it was she said I got my husband back, I got my life back. And when we had our accreditation visit from Beatitudes, which now accredits units that they feel are providing uh, this kind of competent care, she said to me, Ann, be sure to tell them that I now know that if something happened to me, I know he would be okay. Wow. There's no you know, greater thing right. to say than that. The other thing that's really interesting is that the impact on staff has been tremendous. A lot of anxiety in the beginning, but little by little, intuitively, a lot of it makes sense. It speaks to the, you know, the idea of giving comfort right. as the priority that you have, right. not only in permission, but encouragement to do it is really tremendous. Um, Beatitudes had the experience, you know, nobody really liked working on that unit in the beginning. Right. Now they have a waiting list. Of staff who want to work Who on want to work on that unit. And we've had similar kinds of experience with our, th- with our three homes. So talk about that. You mentioned earlier that change, the staff were resistant to change and systems are resistant to change, right? It's because really systems. System, and it's like, it's the, you know, it's, it's, it's a financial system. It's a, it's a, it's a corporate cultural system. It's, it's a schedule system, right? And so to change that, the DNA of the way an organization operates is a fundamental and profound shift. So talk about what happens when the three New York area uh, uh, care facilities uh, tried to change, and you you mentioned that it was it was difficult at first. Well, one of the things I mean, we knew it would be, of yeah. course. Um, and one of the things we said is the methodology is that you're going to spend a year in which you commit to having weekly on-unit interdisciplinary meetings, mm-hmm. where all the disciplines are represented. And when you say disciplines represent, well, that would be nursing, that would be housekeeping, that would be dietary, that would be social work activities. Everyone, every kind of department that touches a patient, right? That's on that unit. And uh, that, you you know, has to be at least one meeting a week, a half hour. Now, this is kind of one of those funny, embarrassing things, too, because if you think about it, the emphasis everywhere is on teamwork, 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 except that there's never any opportunity for the team to talk together. Right. We created that. We asked them, you can, I said, we can start, you can start with whatever practice you want to, whether it's around pain, whether it's around food, whatever you think, uh, sundowning, whatever. But the idea in, in doing it this way was to give staff a chance 
to really work it through and understand the reasons for the change because that's key to making the change. But the other piece of it was to understand in each separate place what were the organizational things that would need to be addressed in order to make it really happen. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them, for example, when we started, used a behavior-based pain scale. They all went a different route eventually to incorporate that, and it took a while. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's also really doing it, you know, checking back, are we using it? Uh, one of the th- In one home where they, uh, they adopted it fairly early on, but what we heard from nurses was, yes, when I see pain, we use it. The idea around a behavior-based pain scale is when you see behavior. I mean, you can use it when you see pain, of course. But the idea was to shift thinking so that when you saw a behavior, you checked first to see. I mean, once you could ask the person why they were uncomfortable. But if they were not able to explain it, you brought out the pain scale because very often when you applied that, you figured out that the cause of the distress was pain. That takes a while before people make that shift. They thought, oh, it's, and also the beauty of the scale that we brought, uh, there are a number of them, was that it was very easy to understand so that we taught it to everybody on the unit, including. And what, what, what is it? Like, so when you say, what's the scale? It just, that it, the scale is just to describe the behavior as you see it. Mm-hmm. And we really try to stop using, for example, agitation, mm-hmm. you know, as a word, um, or behavior. I mean, th- right. that, that doesn't tell you anything. Right. If you're seeing something that's going on, what is it that you see? When does it happen? And what do you know about the causes of it? And little by little, um, and a, a beautiful example of that was at another one of the homes, um, one resident uh, smacked another resident, mm-hmm. kind of pushed them away, and I think they fell, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And the, the, these two residents would get into frequent altercations. And then one day, as they were discussing it at one of these weekly meetings, the nursing assistant said, you know, I think the reason this happens is because she she's looking for the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And so she goes into his room and it upsets him, understandably. Mm-hmm. And that's when it happens. What about, I think the way that the curtain Uh, around the bed in her room is set up if we moved it a certain way she'd be able to see the bathroom Uh, and she wouldn't start going to look for it it's that kind of thing but you don't get there if you don't look for it if you're not looking for the source of it over and over again and so you're not just locking someone's room to keep them apart you're actually thinking about what is it that she's looking for or what is the source of her anxiety or whatever it might be and in the same home um, actually, when they were working on sleep issues and na- this idea of napping, early on in the process, in one of these meetings, at the end of the meeting, the facilitator said, is there anything else? And one of the nursing assistants, who's an older woman who's been there a long time, a very quiet person, very capable, but not a big talker, she said, well, I have something. And we all looked at her, and she said, I've been taking Mrs. Jones and Mr. Smith back to bed after lunch so they can lie down for a little while. And the nurse just swiveled her head around and she said, no wonder it's been so quiet. Because these folks after lunch would get very noisy mm-hmm. and although the word doesn't really apply here, but agitated, right? but very noisy in their agitation. Right. They were tired. Yeah. They needed to lie down for a few minutes. Right. And 
as anybody who works on one of these units knows, it doesn't take more than one or two people to be noisy for the whole place to sort of flame right. up a little bit, right. which is exactly the same recent rationale around um, having the staff do a quiet shift change. If there's a lot of noise going on, mm-hmm. it just tends to escalate. Right. And in that in that particular home also, they talked when they you know they struggled with this idea of a quiet shift change. And the reaction of staff was, but, you know, Mr. Jones expects me to say goodnight to him when I leave for the day. You know, they went immediately to that place. It took a while before they accepted the fact or they understood the fact that that, the loudness of it, the calling down the hall, goodnight, Mr. Jones, you know, Uh, was part of that. Part of the cacophony that was actually That's correct. That's exactly right. They got there, and that we that we were not saying you can't say goodnight to Mr. Jones. Right. That's not the issue here. You get that relate. You know, we encourage those relationships. Right. But what matters is that it, it that it be a relaxed and tranquil situation. Jed uh, uh, Levine, you know, our executive vice president for programs and services here at Karen Kine. He went out. We took people out from each of the homes so they could see for themselves the work at Beatitudes. And as he likes to say, when you walk on that unit, it's not what you see, it's what you don't see. Mm. And it's not about drugging people. Mm -hmm. It's about the fact that it's an easy, comfortable place to be, and people who live there are comfortable. Were there any light bulb moments? Did you get to see kind of a moment with the uh, the three New York area uh, 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 care facilities, yeah, well, when when uh, the staff or someone, uh, where there was kind of a light bulb moment where they said, "Oh, wow, this worked and it was effective," and what a dramatic change. Well, certainly one of them, for example, was Anthony. You know, I mean, when when everything that changed. Individual case. Correct. Right. Uh, another thing uh, at, at at Isabella, one of the things that they started with, they decided to start with snacks. You know, this idea of having food around that people liked uh, or that people could eat. And um, the first thing that happened as we were talking about it, we had a, you know, a really progressive, thoughtful uh, dietitian who really got into this. And she talked to the doctor and the families about immediately going to liberalizing diets for everybody on the unit. I mean, we talked to families. It's not like we did it without their input. But people pretty much you know, got the rationale. But the interesting thing that happened was we started talking about what snacks should be available. And one of the, the aides said, but, you know, you've got you've to get rid of those hard cookies. Nobody eats them because they're too hard. Mm. And uh, everybody looked at each other. I mean, the cookies have been coming up, and they've been going back down. Mm-hmm. And so they switched on this unit to soft cookies. Uh-huh. And within a very short amount of time, people were coming from other units to get the soft cookies. <laughs> and within a very short another amount of time, there were soft cookies all right. over the home. Right. Um, but the other, but but you know, again, this is one of those things of bring food if you want people to eat, give them food they like to eat. Right. You know, and right. it wasn't that anybody was withholding it on purpose. It was just connecting the dots. Right. Um, now the kitchen there is, you know, very, there. we had to do training also with their staff. We didn't want, we wanted everybody to understand the reason why. Right, right. And that's really important. And I, the purpose of those meetings, those weekly meetings, was really to help staff understand um, so that when they made that shift from one set of behaviors that they had been, expect, that had been expected of them 
to another that they could trust it. And I I still remember very clearly in one home an aide looking directly at the dietician and saying, well, you know, I have diabetes. How come I can't just eat anything I like? And the uh, dietician explained, look, you know, you're in your early 50s or whatever it was. You want to live well a, a lot more years, and a lot of your efforts around good eating and, and diabetes will have an impact on how things go in the years ahead. The person who is 87 with diabetes, or, you know, with diabetes is not, and with dementia, right. is not looking to a long life at that point. Right. That's not likely to happen. The other thing is that at that point, for most people, the diabetes is pretty leveled out. Right. It's not going to make that much difference, and also they don't eat that much. Right. And how, what is the reaction to families? Because it's one thing to talk about how uh, you know pro- professional dementia caregivers in a nursing facility uh, uh, care for uh, their residents, but in between those two populations, there are family members, right? So uh, how has that been uh, managing that relationship? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question <laughs> because... The beauty of it is, um, first of all, it's absolutely essential that any kind of changes you make, you talk it through with family. I mean, that's completely bottom line essential. You don't make changes around them, you make changes with them. And you explain to family members, as you have to your staff, what the rationale is and hear their concerns about it. But the other thing about it is, what you're hearing, I hope, from me, is that when you start off a relationship with somebody with dementia, what you're looking for is not just what the problem areas are, but what the active comforts are. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, is it that I, I mention your son's name, you know, when I'm helping you get dressed in the morning because that just makes you feel good? Right. Uh, does uh, walking down the hall, holding your hand make you feel good, you know, whatever right. it is? Because that's really key to comfort too. So that when you start a relationship with a person, and with the family, and you start off talking about what brings comfort, that starts to change the whole dynamic. Right. That that we're all, we together we are looking for how to make your relative comfortable mm-hmm. and as happy as we can possibly make them in the circumstance. That's a different thing from, oh, your mother knocked over the milk today, you right. know? Right. I mean, I think that was a lot of what poor Sharon, you know, experienced with Anthony prior to coming to Isabella was that, um, you know, you, you feel you, the, that memory of your relative who you have loved and been with, um, in most cases loved, um, that memory stays with you long after the person dies. Right. So if you can change that dynamic so that, it, as she said, I know that if something happened to me, he would be okay. Right. That's that's what she'll live with. Right. And that's, to me, that's been one of the sort of almost breathtaking aspects of this whole process is not only what it does for the person, but what it does for the families and mm. also what it does for the staff. Mm. Uh, one of the things that we, that first year we did a lot of measuring of um, different things. Uh, we did, you know, did a lot of research. And uh, in other parts of the country where turnover is a bigger issue, they measure turnover, but we don't have turnover issues so much in New York City. So we measured call-outs, you know, when people call out that they're sick. Mm-hmm. And in all three homes, call-outs went down. Wow. In one of our homes, when we were having the accreditation visit, 
and the staff were talking about, you know, what this, I mean, they all thanked us when we went around for that accreditation visit and said, thank you so much for bringing this, you know, this to us. And uh, when we had the, 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 there was a table full of managers and administrators and direct care staff and the folks from Beatitudes who give the accreditation, mm-hmm. when they came down together to say, you know, you've been accredited, uh, one of the things that came up was call-outs, and one of the nursing assistants started to laugh, and she turned to the director of nursing and said, she'll tell you. She said, I used to call out all the time, but I don't anymore. I like to come to work. Wow. So why do, you, why do you come to work? What is it about this issue that that drives you, and why do you do the work that you do? Well, I've been working in long-term care since the 70s, mm-hmm. and I um, have always been interested. Um, I mean, residential care has sort of been my focus. So I've always been interested in how you can make that experience um, better, mm-hmm. Um how we can do a better job of cherishing the people we care for and also of them feeling more in charge of themselves. You know, even if they have um, um, constraints, limitations, how can we make that day as good as possible? That just, you know, that never goes away. That's an interest which starts again every day. But I've always felt as if there were we were missing something in terms of how the services were organized. Mm-hmm. And I haven't particularly worked on dementia till I came here in 2010. I hadn't worked specifically on it. But as I got into this and I began to realize if you can do it for the person with dementia, you can do it for anybody. And that begins to change everything. And we didn't add staffing for any of these places. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't that it's not you're adding services, although it's always great to have uh, you know more music, more this, more that. Right. Um, but it's how we do what we already do. And when you can change that experience for everybody, it's, it's completely thrilling. Prior even to Beatitudes, person-centered care you know, was getting going. And there have been some, there's some wonderful stuff going mm-hmm. on out there. I mean, that, that was already happening. Um, my particular mandate from the caring kind perspective uh-huh. was what can we do to help uh, care for people with dementia in residential settings? And uh, I've read lots of stuff and talked to lots of people. There's a lot of books out there, a lot of great stuff about sort of one-on-one interactions, mm-hmm. a lot of wonderful stuff. But if you don't, what I, what I, what I came to here was what are the organizational shifts? Now, there are, I'm not going to tell you that nobody else does this because mm-hmm. they certainly do. Mm-hmm. But this is the one I found to bring here. And, you know, part of me knows all the answers to those questions, and part of me has the same question of if you could see this. Why in the world wouldn't you do it? Right, right. Um, so that's why what we are doing here, you know, is writing and reading and talking about this, uh, writing and, and, and talking about it as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Our uh, people from our homes have spoken at numerous conferences. They open their homes to other homes, other folks who are interested in seeing what it looks like, talking mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. We're really sharing it out to show that, I mean, there are even cost savings in some cases that right. are possible, um, you don't you don't give somebody uh, not give somebody an antipsychotic because it costs less, but in fact, if you have a good reason for not giving it, it does cost less. You right. know, right. the same thing with supplements. Right. Um, so there are and and of course callouts can get to be you know expensive too. All of these things. Right. Um, so that I think uh, I I think some of it is just that partly. 
the nursing home reform law is just a fabulous vision of why we do, why we want to do what we want to do around caring for people. But a, a lot of the time, organizations, homes, whatever, they get caught up in the kind of the checklist. Mm-hmm. Have you had the shower? Have you had the pill? Have you had the banana? Have you had the whatever? Right. Um, and they're not looking at how these things connect so that the nursing department has a set of things they have to accomplish. Dietary has a set. Social mm-hmm. work has a set. Activities has a set. But the reality is that's not how human be- you know, that's not right. how the person lives their life. Right. You right. know, the silo effect. Is and not- I think the beauty of um, person-centered care, which I am completely in support of and have worked hard with other people over many years to achieve, is a little bit abstract sometimes comfort is actually as a concept a little more accessible because mm-hmm. if i can see that you're you know shifting around in your chair and you look like you want to leave the room i get the picture you're right. a little uncomfortable right. right so it's immediately uh it when, once you start to get that idea that comfort is important mm-hmm. and that if you're uncomfortable what can we do about it that's accessible to everybody who works on the unit, the housekeeper, the dietary aide, right. or the administrator passing through. Right. And so what we noticed, or what I noticed when uh, Beatitudes went back for their accreditation visits, and that's like three years into our, to this work at that point, was when, when they interviewed staff, everybody talked about how they, by themselves, felt more empowered. That is to say, a housekeeper, if they notice what they think that somebody's uncomfortable, maybe in pain, they right. felt empowered to tell the nurse, and the nurse understood to listen right. and to do something about it. Instead of saying, you're the housekeeper, what do That's you know? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And the housekeeper um, uh, can notice, you know? Right. I mean, and, right. and also can say to the person, is there something I can do? Because maybe they need a pillow or, you right. know, whatever it is, so, right. or a glass of water. So it's not like, immediately they give it over to somebody else if there's something they can do or maybe it's just a moment of conversation and Mm -hmm. the person you know relaxes a little bit Mm -hmm. so that what we heard from people over and over was i feel more empowered and we are more of a team right because we're all together looking for comfort Mm -hmm. you sound optimistic about the future well, the idea, you know, early on in one of our training sessions, in, a ver- in our very first training session, there was a break, and one of the, I saw one of the evening nurses at one of the homes, and he was slumped in his chair, and he just looked so despondent. And I, you know, I sat with him, and I said, "What's the matter?" And he said, "You know, I keep, I can't, I feel so badly." He said, "There was a woman I passed by every night, and she would be moaning and crying out." And I would walk by her every night, he said, because I thought there wasn't anything I could do. And now I realize there's something I could do. So I think for those of us who do this work, it's not that we think, you know, the world will be fixed by tomorrow or next year, but it's the idea that in daily life, there are things we can do that we thought we couldn't. That's a pretty great thing. That is. And Wyatt, thank you so much for the work that you do. And thanks for coming in and sitting down. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to share your story, go to caringkindnyc.org slash podcast. Maybe we'll use your story on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave some glowing feedback. We love positive reinforcement. I'm Chris Doucette, and you're listening to Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving.